of all the biases, this is quite difficult to correct for because you almost need a sort of meta routine where you say, when I'm going to make a judgment, jump one step back and try and ask the question, am I being overly biased towards some recent example? But making that step back is almost a habit that you have to get into. And if you don't, then this one is, I think, quite difficult to spot. Welcome back to Bits of a Tangent. I'm Gianluca, and as always, I'll be joined by my co-host and good friend, Jared. This is part three of our series on mental models, in which we discuss the cognitive biases that often impede critical thinking and decision-making. If you haven't yet listened to parts one and two, we highly recommend you do so. They represent the culmination of many years of thinking and research on how to improve one's understanding of the world and make better decisions. They're not only some of our most popular episodes, but also ones that we feel were some of our best. But it's also okay to jump in here too. Whilst parts one and two were focused on instrumental uses of mental models, this episode examines the common failure modes of our critical thinking and how we can mitigate them. We discuss the idea of system one and two thinking as a framing for the entire discussion before exploring 12 of the most deadly thinking traps and how to avoid them. We scoured the rationalist tomes and our personal notes to compile a list of the biases that give you the most bang for your epistemological buck. In some cases, that's ones you've certainly heard of but might not know how to overcome. In other cases, it's ones you might never have been introduced to, but which affect you daily. Our goal was not to produce an A to Z dictionary of biases. It was to complement parts one and two by equipping your mental toolkit to upgrade your thinking. Links to almost everything we talk about, as well as some superb articles and resources we don't, can be found in the show notes. Lastly, thanks to everyone who has joined us on this journey of exploring mental models over the past weeks. Your support has been incredibly motivating. By sharing these episodes and spreading these ideas, you're helping to ensure that others can make wiser decisions too, which is the first step in improving the world for us all. Without further delay, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. back for part two of our podcast on mental models and ways to think better to be more effective so today we're predominantly going to focus on psychology and these sort of cognitive biases or heuristic school of thinking so i know that john luca has a couple of exciting lists that we're going to get through today but i always have an exciting list it's... i've got many exciting <laughs> lists but i think you had a great idea which is we could frame this whole conversation in terms of the now quite well-known and, and famous idea of system one versus system two, and then everything slots in on top of that. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so this was Kahneman and Tversky's Nobel Economic Prize winning idea that then gets applied all throughout the world of economics and psychology, which is that when it comes to human thinking, there is no such thing as a rational being that we're all irrational because we have this biphasic way of thinking psychologically. And they framed it as having two systems within the brain, system one and system two, as they've named them, system one being a intuitive, very efficient, fast, cached lookup system, right? So your system one is you see a stop sign and your foot immediately hits the brake pedal, whereas your system two is a more deliberate form of thinking that you might exploit when you are going through a rigorous mathematical proof that you might use when you are trying to craft the perfect sentence for your next paragraph in the essay that you're writing, those kinds of mental tasks. So the system one and system two framing is very useful because system one has the trade-off of being wrong a lot of the time, but being really quick. And so for most things, you can just use system one. And if you try to use system two for all of the things that you use system one for in your daily life, you would crash your car, trip over your own feet and not recognize people that walk past you and you know end up being a social pariah um, within about five minutes of getting out of bed if you could even get out of bed successfully. Whereas your system two thinking is crucial for the higher order cognitive tasks, the things that let us really move forward 
collectively by building on the knowledge of others around us and communicating ideas across time and space, which is what largely what makes humans an effective species. And so it's a really nice framing of having the system one and system two, because you know that you can make system one work for you, but it does have its downsides. Things like cognitive biases, which are, in, at least in my framing, a cognitive bias is really just a heuristic that's being misapplied. And so heuristic is something that lets you get pretty accurate answers really quickly. It's a simple rule that you can access quickly that gets you most of the benefits. But in that you know, two to three to five percent of cases that the heuristic doesn't work for, if that's the entirety or the majority of whatever task you're doing, well, then that's now just a bias. Now, that heuristic is literally working against you. And this is where you need your system two thinking to come in and check on what system one is doing and systematically improve your default behavior. So quite an extensive tangent there, but I think it's worth framing that quite nicely in those terms because everything else that we talk about falls into place a lot more cleanly. Yeah, and I think you make a key distinction there, which is that often when you start to talk about biases, it's very easy to imagine that these are all mistakes, right? That in some sense, this is just our evolutionary hardwiring and it's going to be mistaken, it's going to be irrational. But there's a lot of sort of interesting research and debate as to how these have actually helped us. And I mean, you give some good examples. We want these fast, intuitive snap judgments when, for example, the orange striped thing jumps out of the bushes. We don't need to sit there and pass each element and look, okay, well, it has four legs and teeth. And no, we just shout tiger and run. So that's a toy example. But there are, I think, other cases where, for example, a bias will get to, which is sort of loss aversion, right, where we really overweight from an economic point of view if you just did the pure maths did the expected value calculation we overweight a loss compared to a similar gain well people like Nassim Taleb have argued that no this is actually quite evolutionarily rational where a loss of let's say a meal on one day could be the difference between the proliferation of your genes or the cessation in that gene pool or like the loss of your entire life means you, you never get any more expected value or utility, however you want yeah, to frame it. exactly. So this is just to point out that when people talk about the sort of heuristics and biases literature, we spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about how these fail us. And it is worth investigating the edge case. But it is worth noting that for most of our evolutionary history, these have served us well. And they serve us well in very difficult places where, for example, if you were trying to create an AI that had the same intuition, it would be a very difficult task. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's a really nice point to bring up as well, because it's important always to reflect on the fact that most of the aspects of our bodies and our minds are optimized for survival in the ancestral landscape of about, you know, 50 to 100,000 years ago, sort of dry savanna lands in small groups of 15 to 150 hominids living off the land as hunter-gatherers. And while a lot more have been developed on top of that in the modern world, and there is a large influence of nurture, aside from nature, the hardware that we're running is definitely optimized for that ancestral landscape. And so it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of these things, like you point out, loss aversion, make a lot of sense in that environment because the costs to getting things wrong were a lot higher. Whereas in a modern world, that's not necessarily the case. And so that's where a lot of the system two deliberation needs to come in, where you need to sometimes stop and ask yourself, in the situation I find myself in, do my biases make sense? And that's why understanding them and knowing them and talking about them is a crucial thing. And that's why we're making this episode, because they've been enormously useful to ourselves in our discussions and thinking. And so we are propagating <laughs> that into meme space. There we go. So first of all, a lot of these will be I'm expecting familiar to a decent chunk of listeners. So we're trying to balance here getting everyone on board because not knowing about these can be harmful and you'd certainly be improved if you did. But if you've heard it before, it can be a little bit tedious. So what I want to do is you mentioned that you have a sort of list that you keep of some biases that are that do a lot of weightlifting, but they are not particularly well known. So why don't we just run through that? And basically, if there's something that would be a prerequisite to understand that, then we can talk through as we go. 
Yeah, well, minor addendum to that definition is that some of these are quite well known, but they are ones that I've put down because the value of knowing about them, given that you might not, that some people still don't, is so high that it's worth just reiterating them. And because they have very nice workarounds or mental tricks that you can use to avoid getting caught up by them. So some of them you will have certainly heard of before, but you might not have heard of the little tricks that you can use, the maybe meta heuristics to know when you should just go with your system one thinking and when you need to override with system two. So yeah, let's dive in. Go for it. So I think the, the first one we'll dive into is, uh, I mean, I think it's quite humorous to start this way, but the, the first one should be the availability heuristic. So uh, the availability heuristic is essentially a heuristic or bias, which affords the most available ideas coming to your attention first, right? Now, when we think of things, when we try and recall a list of people we've seen over the weekend or what we ate for breakfast over the past week, the things that pop into our mind first are the ones that are more available. And the availability heuristic says that things which more easily pop into your mind are ones that occur more often. And therefore, it weights your subjective experience of the sample accordingly. So let me put that in a more concrete framework. Imagine you are the kind of person who always eats cereal for breakfast, but then over the last few weeks, you've been eating scrambled eggs more often. Now, when someone asks you to say how often you eat eggs versus cereal for breakfast on a survey, for instance, you are more likely to recall the scrambled eggs first because they're more available because it's more recent and because you've recently made that switch and you're more likely to have had scrambled eggs that morning. This will then cause you to overestimate how many times you had scrambled eggs versus cereal in the past. Right. So once again, toy example here, but this comes up all the time when you are recalling times that someone has done a bad job at work instead of a good job. If they've done a bad job a few times recently, you will remember those first and your brain will evaluate them as having done a bad job more often, even though that's not necessarily the case. So essentially what this is in maybe statistical terms is most recent samples are weighted more than least recent samples. So if you have 30 things, the most recent five will be weighted more highly than the others when you look back on the whole sampling. You know, I hate to do this, but isn't there a, a good machine learning analogy there that don't? I think there was a paper I saw where that exact tendency tends to happen with um, image recognition uh, networks mm. where you, you train it on all of these images and they kind of tend to forget the old examples and, and really do focus in on the last few. I might be wrong there, mm. but I'll see if I can find that paper because it's... Well, I mean, yeah, that's essentially what's happening when you haven't set your learning rate correctly. When your learning rate is too high, then you're just overfitting to the most recent example. And then each new example that comes along and you overfit to that one. See, that's, so, that's, really mean, nice that's essentially the same thing. It. But yes, so the availability heuristic is something to be aware of. Like the first idea that pops into your head is probably overweighted in your mental analysis of a situation. So if you are deciding whether or not someone is trustworthy and they've betrayed you very recently, that'll pop into your mind straight away and will be overly weighted in your decision. So potentially you need to correct for that. Okay. Depending on the scenario. So now my general line of thinking there is that of all the biases, this is quite difficult to correct for because you almost need a sort of meta routine where you say, when I'm going to make a judgment, jump one step back and try and ask the question, am I being overly biased towards some recent example? But making that step back is almost a habit that you have to get into. And if you don't, then this one is, I think, quite difficult to, to spot. Yeah. Well, I just want to also caveat this by saying that the reason we probably have an availability heuristic is twofold. Firstly, things which happen more recently are easier to remember because of the way the actual physiology of our brains works. If you're talking about like uh, reinforcing neural pathways, uh, decay, memory decay, those kind of things. Physiologically, that just makes sense. It's how it's going to work most likely anyway. But it's actually quite useful in many instances because more recent information is generally more reliable than older information because it's a more accurate reflection on current events. I mean, this is just a, like a Markov process, right? Like your, your most recent samples are more likely to reflect future occurrences than more, more distant ones in the past. So 
there are time a lot of the time this will actually be a good heuristic but there are certain times when it will not serve you well and it's probably worth just double checking yourself by using some kind of meta heuristic or some kind of technique so i mean a great example that comes to mind for me is if you're making some big decision that is based on recalling some events what you can do is you can stop and instead say give yourself five minutes to list all the occurrences that you can recall because this gives your brain more time to think up the more extensive list and then you can look on the page in front of you and weigh up how many times something has occurred versus hasn't occurred to get a better sense of the actual sample now if you choose to weight the more recent ones more heavily well then that's fair too like if in your five most recent birthdays you got given a chocolate cake whereas the 20 before that you got given a vanilla cake well you probably should guess that you're going to get a chocolate cake again because it's likely that someone's just going to stick with the same recipe they've used most recently but at least then you'll be aware of the fact that like on average they're more likely to make vanilla cake right so but then at least you're aware of the fact that the data might be skewed by recency Uh, another thing that you can do that i think is really useful is like daily journaling or daily logging of things as opposed to just trying to recall it when you need it like you go to the doctor and they ask you like when did you start experiencing these symptoms how severe is it on an average day all of these things those are going to be completely off if you haven't been logging it daily or writing it down daily right so if you only write things down once a month you your your look back on the month before is going to be vastly different to if you write things down every day and then summarize it at the end of the month so that's another useful technique like logging things often or as they occur versus trying to look back at the end of some period and summarize mm. i mean the only thing I would add there is it actually, if you think about the availability heuristic, it reminds me of a thing we mentioned briefly on the previous episode about the sort of least recently used caching algorithm. And exactly. from a sort of evolutionary point of view, our brains are probably performing that kind of um, lookup and have to go, what do we store? What do we mm. get rid of? And least recently used is quite a good algorithm. And I assume that's one of the reasons that we are implementing a version of it. Yeah, it's it's like a, a de facto heuristic, right? Mm. It's like, it's pretty much the definition of a heuristic. So yeah, availability heuristic, there it is. And it was the first one that came to mind when I was thinking of heuristics. <laughs> and that's why it's the first one we go to. All right, throw us another one. Just run down your list. And as we go, we will free associate. <laughs> Great. Um, so some related ones here uh, are scope insensitivity and base rate neglect. Right. right now, these both come as sort of corollaries from the fact that humans don't think in terms of frequentist statistics we're more like bayesian statistics but even that we're not very good at inherently we require a lot of training to actually be good at doing those statistical estimations at least in our heads for various reasons so let's look at scope and sensitivity first scope and sensitivity is when humans can focus on one or two scenarios and weight them far more than a larger sample right so we disproportionately focus on some smaller things over some larger things great example of this is let's say a friend of yours recently got mugged walking down a street in your neighborhood right but in the 10 years preceding no one has been mugged in your neighborhood well now your perception of the likelihood of getting mugged in your neighborhood is skewed right so this is is so tightly coupled with the availability heuristic in Mm. many regards that's why it's worth mentioning next Uh, Another example of this would be when charities are trying to get people to donate, the donations are inversely proportional to the number of recipients that the charity shows. So if you show one starving child on the television ad, then people donate X number of dollars. If you show the starving child and her brother, then they donate x over two dollars and as you increase it like when when the issue is you know there are a hundred thousand starving children somewhere in the world well then everyone's just like overwhelmed and they don't even donate yeah i mean so that i mean that was an actual study it's we're not making that up uh and the interesting thing about that though is i mean i just wonder what sort of cognitive algorithm is doing it and i imagine it's some form of almost cutting your losses so if you can expect to save one child with some resource um, investment, I think there's some ancient part of our brain that looks at this number of like 100,000. And there's either there's a few things going on here, which we will talk about as psychological biases themselves, right? One is that, you know, a single salient example can outweigh a dry but true numerical fact, right? I mean, 
one image versus just the dry number 100,000, let's say. But there's also, I think, a kind of futility. And then there's also the free rider problem, which is a kind of a game theoretic idea, which I'm really excited to get to talking about because it's one of the most interesting problems that I think about personally. And I don't know, I think there's there's some combination of those. So if that's just a teaser of how having these kind of models can help you break down and try and analyze why things happen, maybe there's that, but continue as you were, please. Yeah, so I mean, I think another factor which comes in with scope and sensitivity, especially when you're talking about human beings and events or characters or anything like that, is that human brains are optimized to think socially and emotionally. And as you increase that number, our ability to empathize decreases. And at some point, we just can't even imagine at all, right? So like when you imagine 100,000 people, your ability to empathize with that proportionately to, you know, the number 100,000 is just, is just not there at all. You can't put yourself in 100,000 people's shoes uniquely. You can do it for one or two, but that's it. And so that's the first factor. And the second factor is that in the ancestral environment, you would never have had to think about 100,000 people. And the only time you would have is if there were 100,000 people in front of you, which would probably never have happened. And if it did, it would mean that you're on some battlefield or at some gathering around like a, a waterhole or whatever it might have been. And in that case, well, you would be appropriately tuned in to the scope by the fact that it was happening in front of you. Whereas when you're thinking of it purely abstractly when you're reading a news article about it when you're seeing a video about things it's it's much harder to connect that with reality it just becomes some some value mm, yeah so i think the second thing that you mentioned there is base rate neglect and this is kind of just a special case of of not fully reasoning in a sort of bayesian manner right i almost have moved away from using base rate because i think it's more helpful to just say uh, or to think in terms of priors, and, and they must be equivalent. But mm, absolutely. thinking in terms of if you're only updating on your evidence, that can mean very little, even if you think you have strong evidence, if the priors were, let's say, very unlikely. Uh, the great, and I think at this point well-known example is, you know, you do some sort of medical test, uh, take testing for HIV, right? And this is something that in South Africa we do all the time and we have a fairly high rate of HIV. But you would have to reevaluate uh, the kind of test that you used, let's say, if you were doing this in the US, where the rate of HIV is quite a lot lower than in South Africa. The HIV tests that we use are 99% sensitive. So if you have mm. HIV, they will pick it up in they will be positive in 99% of cases but that means though that in america where the rate of hiv is really really low it'll be falsely positive so often that it might actually not be worthwhile so like if you were just to yeah. give that test to everyone in the population you would get so many people who the test says have hiv even though they don't exactly and so that's just that's medicine is particularly let's say vulnerable to base rate neglect and in some sense, that can be compensated for by like how you select who to give a test to. You know, if you've got a doctor who then thinks, okay, well, this patient has the risk factors, maybe they look like they're immunocompromised. But this gets you into trouble when you're designing things like a screening program, right? Where you want to, mm -hmm. let's say, give a mammogram to every woman over 25. Would that make sense? Well, if the breast cancer risk is really, really low in that age group and mammograms are pretty good at detecting breast cancer, you'll still get so many false positives that it wasn't worth doing it. So that's where that is really applicable. Yeah. I mean, there's like the canonical textbook example where they set the accuracy, so sensitivity and specificity at 95% uh, for the breast cancer screening. And then given some like quite natural priors for the rate that it occurs in the population in females, if you then get a positive result, the chance that you actually have breast cancer will be like 16% which on a test that you've been told is 95% accurate, in quotes, it seems ridiculous, right? It's like it's, you almost yeah. certainly still don't have it, even if you get the positive result, which is so deeply unintuitive that even people who are studying statistics and have done for years, the first time they see this, can't wrap their heads around it until they actually like draw it out <laughs> in like a grid. And like I'd encourage anyone who that sounds really weird and unintuitive to to like go look up where people actually illustrate this visually, and then you'll like get it and be like, oh, okay. And then it starts sinking in. And this is something we probably do wrong all the time in our in our lives because 
yeah, essentially base rate neglect is when you're not paying attention to the underlying rate at which something occurs because you are focused so highly on some other posterior piece of information. Yeah. Right. So it's like it's super unlikely that there's going to be a terrorist sitting on your bus ready to detonate a bomb. But yet when some dude walks in with a backpack that looks a bit dodgy, you suddenly like say it's like, oh, it's eighty percent likely to happen in your in your mind. That's that's what you're estimating. But you're neglecting the base rate of it being so unlikely in mm. the first place that any update in the evidence is shifting the needle very little there. Yeah. So those 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 three are all very closely tied. Yeah, completely. Cool. Should we move on? Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so taking a bit of a of a hard left here, we're going to go to the planning fallacy. Now, this is one that a lot of people have probably heard of. Uh, anytime you have the situation where some contractor wins the bidding process and they, you know, going to erect this new theater or stadium or whatever it might be for a hundred million dollars in the next two years, and it takes them ten years and a billion dollars, <laughs> and it's like they run so far over. But this happens like all over the world. Like I think the Elbe Philharmonie orchestra hall in hamburg in germany went 10x over budget <laughs> like, and i mean and and like way over the time budget as well so like i mean this literally happens everywhere and i mean there's a number of political factors involved and also incentives when it comes to bidding because if the lowest bidder wins well then people are going to overestimate what they can do in a certain period of time but the, the core sort of illustration here is of the planning fallacy so the planning fallacy is when you think something will take a certain amount of time or resources and you end up woefully misestimating that value. And like any time you've been cramming to like get some assignment in at three in the morning before you have to submit it for some deadline, you've probably fallen prey to the planning fallacy. Like you, you, you knew how much time you had to do this thing. You knew what you had to do, but yet your assessment of how long and how many resources that would take is just so completely inaccurate that you find yourself in the situation where you're frantically struggling at the end to get everything done. And it's a really hard one to counter for. And I'm not entirely sure why we have this over-optimism usually, and at least in the modern application of it. Um, so I don't know if you have any ideas there or like how this would have come up in the ancestral landscape. But while you're thinking about that, I think a, a really nice illustration of this is an experiment where they had students estimate how long it would take them to finish some assignment. And the way they had the students do it was to give their sort of confidence intervals for this. So they had to give like a 50%, 80%, 95%, 99% confidence interval, essentially saying, at what date are you 50% sure you'll have done your assignment? At what date are you 80%? At what date are you 95%? At what date are you 99% sure you'll have done the assignment? And they gave all these dates, and I think, like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the study is funny in that, like, almost all of them run over their 99% confidence <laughs> date, right? It's, like, it's just like, you, had to, you were 99% sure you'd be done, and almost all of them ran over that time, which, like, statistically speaking, is so unlikely to happen. Yeah. Overconfidence. So, yeah, you're, you're probably going to get hit by a meteor <laughs> before a 99% confidence interval should be like overstepped right like uh by that many people in a large study like because it, it, it's 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 like one percent chance multiplied by one percent chance by one percent chance so it's like one percent to the number of people in the study kind of thing mm. so i mean it's super unlikely that they should all run over um and it wasn't probably all of them but i will link the study in the show notes but a really nice illustration um uh, so there's two ways generally that you can avoid the planning fallacy or sort of pr future proof against it uh, the first way is to look at have you or has someone else done a similar activity or task before? That's uh, generally known as reference class forecasting, right? Yeah, exactly. Reference class forecasting. So yeah, so if someone else or you have done a similar task before and the smaller, shorter term the task, the more accurate this is, you can just look at how long it took someone else, how long it took you in the past and just use that. So if you've had to do homework assignments every week and it's roughly the same every week, then just look at how long it took you last week and that's a pretty good estimate of how long it'll take you this week. Cool. Um, and that that works kind of well, except for times when it's something that no one has ever done before mm. or where no you don't know what is required, right? In which case, a good strategy is to just have some coefficient where you, you just multiply how long you think it's going to take or how many resources it's going to take by some coefficient. And over time, you can refine those coefficients Right. So you just have a personal sort of reference for how much you're sort of, and some people have called this a, like a fudge ratio. So you like, you think it's going to take you X. You multiply that by a coefficient of like 3.5, let's say, 
And then you find out, okay, cool, I still took slightly longer than that on a task that was unknown to me. And then the next time you have an unknown task, increase your fudge ratio. So you're just mentally sort of calibrating. Um, and that's sort of an Bayesian updating system of like, however much you went over, you sort of can weight mm. your fudge ratio increase or decrease by that amount. So if you underestimated, you increase it. If you overestimated, you decrease it. And eventually you can get a pretty good estimate of that as, as good as you're going to get when you're doing unknown tasks but that's kind of rare to be doing unknown tasks a little bit of research will actually yield a pretty good estimate of how long things will take you right yeah there's an important point with reference class forecasting which is just a common failure mode which i think some people have called reference class tennis which is where you get into an argument about which reference class actually applies here yeah so sometimes it's really easy you, know, you have a homework assignment but and you can just use the previous type of homework assignment. But you can imagine if you have different classes and this is for uh, a homework assignment in another class, now you suddenly have to yep. start choosing. And, and getting out of that is some combination of trying to realistically, first of all, evaluating similarity, which is not trivial often. And then I think yep. this sort of fudging heuristic is actually a really clever way of getting around that where you just add in some general bias term essentially to your calculation and say and you can almost refine that through time and and that could that could probably save you having to play reference class tennis because now choose the a close enough one and then add in your yeah. your personal general bias term exactly it works it works especially well within one organization or one individual where you get pretty good feedback quite quickly on these things mm. but like for some short-term projects or whatever like that it doesn't work very well in the case of like the classic one that i see come up almost every day is people using like examples of like the industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution as the same reference class as like when we're going to achieve artificial general intelligence <laughs> and or, or how that's going to affect like the the economic stability of of the world or like the nature of work or things like that <laughs> it's like we've got we've got essentially like three examples in the past of of times when humanity's gone through like a massive phase transition and they're all unique in their own ways and we're trying to use those as references for the future it's 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 historically not gone very well i mean the original prediction in like the 1940s was or 1950s it might have been was that it would take a few grad students about one summer to develop artificial intelligence yeah that, and, uh, that one worked out if i roll spoiler if I spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> most overworked grad students ever <laughs> um so i want to take us down a little path of actually do i want to do this now what's the next one on your list uh wow okay next one on my list that i think we can go to nice quick one anchoring anchoring okay this most people might have heard of this yeah cool so uh the anchoring effect is useful in negotiation and it's useful but it's also has the characteristic of being possibly manipulative and can bias your thinking and essentially what happens is in the same way that with the availability heuristic you kind of overfit to a recent example with anchoring if you are presented some example or a reference range for some value right then what happens is you just tend to operate within that reference range. So you are negotiating on the price of a car and the first person to mention a number is subconsciously implanting kind of the anchoring point and you will now tend to negotiate around that number when in fact, if you had started the negotiation off at a different point, you might have anchored it um, quite, well, you would have anchored in a different neighborhood. The mm. best kind of experiment here is one where you can, like randomly generate a number, right? Yeah, like like one of those spinning random wheels with different numbers, like on game shows. Exactly. So people know this number is random, and then you it comes out either high or low. It's kind of rigged to give either a very low number or a very high number. You can ask people like, how old was Gandhi when it's, when he died? And if the low number comes up, they like systematically give much lower answers they say you know like the number 15 comes up and people say oh gandhi was in his 30s when he died and mm. if you get the, the machine to output something like a random number in the 80 range then people say oh yeah gandhi was around 90 when he died and so yeah. there's there's no good reason right people are honestly anchoring to that number yeah. and yeah i guess this can be useful as a tool if you want to negotiate and yeah. it's definitely open to the sort of dark side of being used as a tool of manipulation yeah 
I mean, the irony is that it's actually a good example of being a Bayesian thinker, right? You, you're essentially creating a prior based on that anchor point, and then you are updating given the arguments or the discussion, whatever. The problem is you're just setting the prior on something that might not be related at all to what you're talking about or might be adversarially implanted there to get <laughs> you to have a bad posterior or bad updating, right? So it's like, it fundamentally, it's actually doing a pretty interesting thing in that it's like pegging to something and then updating based on evidence. But it's 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 so easy to exploit and is so mm. readily exploited and is so primed to being confused by things that come from a different context that it's uh, it's one to definitely watch out for. Yeah, you see this particularly in arguments where mm. what will happen is someone that you are trying to have a discussion with, they might use a particular framing of an issue that can anchor in someone's mind. Let's say you associate transhumanism and, and you, you immediately get across the idea that this is for sort of like rich white techno mm. geeks and once you do that even if let's say that was i mean it's quite possible that that's representative i, I really I've, I've never taken a survey but once you've put the conversation on those terms you're almost forcing the other person to defend against that claim even if that was yep. not the original bone of contention maybe the debate was about is it a good idea to prolong life if life is an inherent good but now yep. you're having this secondary level argument which was not the original claim and, mm. and i think this is kind of a form of the anchoring uh, bias exactly it's it's a great point that you bring up because it doesn't have to be numeric explicitly it's mm. just even more explicitly wrong when it is numeric but the one that i often see come up in terms of how people can exploit this uh, to their advantage is when you go to a job interview and then it gets to that awkward point where like things have gone quite well and now they're ne like negotiating salary with you and the thing that a lot of people say is like you can start by going well, I have seen on Glassdoor or on online or in other discussions or speaking to my peers that a good median salary for this position would be, and then you say some slightly inflated number and then say, but, you know, I really like this company and I'd be happy to accept, and then some slightly lower number that might still be above what they would otherwise have offered you. But because you're anchoring to the higher number, that seems like, oh, this guy's pretty reasonable. Um, whether that actually works against the seasoned interviewer, whether you can pull that off without seeming totally sleazy and transparent about it yeah. is totally up to the individual. But uh, that is one that I've heard uh, people try and use. The other one is like overinflating the asking price of your house on the market so that even when people give you ridiculously lower offers, it's still way above what you would have get if you put it on listed at a reasonable estimate of the actual value. But uh, once again, caveat emptor. We have a tendency to punish those we feel are trying to cheat us. And so if you make the entire housing market feel like you are trying to do that, or if you make your job interviewer feel like you are trying to play a psychological game with them, I imagine that might go down quite badly. Yeah, I think the real value of this one comes out of knowing when it's being used against you mm. or knowing when it's occurring uh without intention and avoiding those situations rather than trying to use it adversarially to one-up people in cheap interactions because i think even uh robert cialdini points this out in his work as saying like do, like don't try and exploit people using these tricks because you win in the short term but you lose in the long term to your reputation whereas mm. if you use these to sort of defend against people doing that to you and to be more honest and equitable about things then it usually benefits you more in the long term so yeah so maybe just using it to notice when maybe someone in a meeting says oh you know like our quarterly earnings have been down by this amount and now you know that everyone's actually been anchored by that number and you're trying to maybe counter for that by saying in the next meeting we don't mention that until the end of the meeting so that we don't like anchor to that or whatever those kind of things yeah but yeah a related one here is uh the halo effect uh, this is a really interesting one whereby we assume that someone or something that is really strong in one aspect or one property is also strong or weak in another, right? So someone who's very good looking is also generally perceived as being more intelligent and more competent and more honest and more likable. And someone who's uh, not so good looking is perceived as less intelligent, less likable, less honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, humans tend to do this and we put halos on people or things based on one aspect and unfairly or inaccurately assume other properties from them. And this probably made sense in like the evolutionary context because there weren't that many things to be good at. And generally, if you saw someone who was dominant in one aspect, they probably dominated their tribe purely on that aspect alone. So it was probably a good idea to assume they were in charge or whatever that would have meant in the evolutionary context. Whereas in the modern world, basing 
on someone's appearance. I mean, yeah, so in, as in to say in the ancestral environment, reproductive success was pretty much all that mattered, survival and reproduction. Whereas in the modern world, there's a lot more things that matter. And so it tends to work against us a lot more often. That said, given the fact that everyone's doing this and it's very hard to actually compensate for, like you could try and not use like pictures of people in their blog posts or whatever like that, but it's very hard to avoid falling prey to the halo effect subconsciously. But one thing you can do is then knowing that this is how everyone is perceiving the world, you can make more of an effort to improve your performance in some aspects that are very easy to notice. So for instance, physical appearance is one of them. So it just increases how much motivation you should have to get yourself into shape, to dress reasonably well, to take care of your body and to go into social interactions with enthusiasm and sincerity, because those are things you can control about your physical appearance. And that can actually make a significant difference to how people perceive you in other ways. So I think it is difficult to avoid. And it's one of the most unfair things. I think of all the biases we have, this one is besides the one that makes us neglect increasing numbers of dying children. That one's pretty mm. bad. But this bias to project onto people we find attractive and people we like, you could call this as well a bias from liking. And I think there's a reciprocal bias from hating. But when we like someone, we assume the best. And I guess it does make a little bit of statistical sense. You know, if someone's good at something, it, it's a little bit of evidence that they are a competent, interested person. But it's probably something that we want to move away from as we grow wiser as a society. So I guess related to this is a bias that I find myself trying to think about more and more often, which is uh, sometimes called the fundamental attribution error, which yeah. is um, roughly speaking, the tendency to, when we think about ourselves, right, we tend to take the subjective view, we tend to understand the circumstances that affected a decision, right? But when we think about others, we tend to think in terms of inborn personality traits and tendencies deep within them. So we make character judgments for others and we are quite sympathetic and understanding of context for ourselves, you know? And this is tied in, I think, with so many of our worst, most tribal tendencies, but it's also tied in with a Kierkegaard quote, which actually sums up the whole thing which i think goes roughly something like we are subjective to ourselves and objective to others whereas life's challenge is to become objective to ourselves and subjective to others mm. and it's just that right in this sort of fundamental attribution era we are completely understanding when when we're a bad person it's because we've had a bad day and i was hungry and i was exactly. in traffic and i was angry so that thing i did well that wasn't really me that was just my circumstances but when someone mm. else cuts you off in traffic they're a terrible person and you can't, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the scenario that I really love and I can't remember who to attribute this to, but was when you walk past someone else kicking a vending machine, you think, oh, what a, like, what's the, you know, a rough, uncouth, gross <laughs> person who just doesn't care for society and property and is such like a horrendous person. But when you have had a really terrible day and your dog got run over by a car in the morning and then you haven't eaten the whole day and it's been that deadline that you're working to and then you got fired and all you just needed was to get something from the vending machine to spike your blood sugar so that you could survive the next few hours while you were working and it stole your money and now it won't give you the chocolate bar <laughs> and now you're like really frustrated with it and you kick the vending machine well then it's just because of your circumstance and that's like it's a perfect framing of that obviously it's an exaggerated case but it's probably happens more often than we'd care to admit. Actually ties into what we spoke about in previous episodes uh, relating to free will quite a bit, but we won't go into that now. If you're interested, definitely check out those episodes. Uh, yeah, another one that's related to these ideas of competence and perceiving things in others versus ourselves is the quite well-known now Dunning-Kruger effect, mm. which is probably most easily summarized with the graphic, but seeing as how we're a podcast and we don't have that uh, affordance here, uh, it's probably worth people looking that up. But essentially what it says is that, I mean, the more you the more you know about something, the more there is to know. So people tend to overinflate how good they think they are at something that they're bad at. And as people get better at a thing, they tend to rate themselves as much worse at it than people who knew nothing. So like people who are really naive on some topic think they're actually pretty good and know a reasonable amount of it. And then when you learn a bit more, you realize that you know nothing and you feel like you're really low down in how much you understand about that topic. And only... When you become really an expert at something, do you start to then have a more 
reasonable estimation of how much you really do know about something. So it's like, you know, when you're in high school, you feel like you know everything about the world. And uh, then you go to university and after like a, a semester or two doing something very technical, let's say, or something very difficult in a specialized area, you feel like you know absolutely nothing. But by the time you're a grad student working on your submitting your thesis in some specialized niche of that topic, well, like, you know, finally feel like you actually maybe understand it reasonably well. And when you're doing a presentation on it and people ask you questions and you can actually answer them, then you're like, okay, cool. Like, I, I have a pretty good understanding of what I do and don't know. But uh, for the majority of people, I mean, the majority of people are totally inexperienced in the majority of topics, right? So this is like true. Like, think, you know, any given person listening to this and ourselves, we're not experts on most things. So we, we overestimate how much we know about those things and underestimate how much there is to know about those things. So we're all falling yeah. prey to this all the time. We just notice it as particularly egregious when it's people thinking they know everything about a topic that we feel like we know more about or are in the bottom of that, the trough of that curve where we feel like, oh, how could they say that? They know nothing. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of related to a couple of things we've already discussed. One is just that when you don't know what you don't know, I think we systematically underestimate the size of what there is to be learned. We kind of simplify in our heads what the essence of something is. And that's also yep. easy when you have, you know, kind of bite-sized Twitter-level content that can summarize quite difficult and contentious often issues into mm. you know, one or two lines. And then you say, well, I think quantum mechanics is about light as wave, light as particle. How difficult can that be, right? Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. Collapse of the wave function. No, 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 no. Yeah. Mumble it and everything becomes more clear, obviously. So that's an interesting tendency. And it is also related to that idea we've spoken about where it's possible to, if you're not thinking from first principles, if you can't rederive your knowledge from scratch, then you can end up repeating back jargon and essentially parroting the deep knowledge without yeah. really grokking it, right? Exactly. Well, a related idea here is the curse of knowledge, which is why a university professor can really struggle to set a good exam, right? They're an expert on this topic. They wrote the textbook, and yet they either set an exam question that's just impossible for anyone to solve in a reasonable amount of time, or kind of pretty easy. Mm. And it's like, well, how, surely? How can you be an expert on this topic and not know how to set the exam question? And in reality, it's because they can't remember what it's like to not know. And so the inferential steps and the instincts and all those things that are finely tuned for them are not for people who've just learned a topic or are still learning it so that's often why you can sit in the lecture and be like oh this is so boring and obvious can you not speed up and then the next lecture you feel like you can't keep up and you spend a week frantically trying to understand what was going on and this is you know particularly challenging because you'd imagine that being taught by a world-class expert on something is a good thing but sometimes actually learning from someone who's just learned it themselves is the better way to go because they remember what it's like to not know. Yeah, I think that's also related to our now ubiquitous and most beloved bias, which is expecting short inferential distances, right? Our most beloved bias. I mean, that's a fantastic <laughs> term. That's not going somewhere on the website. It's, it is. It's, it has so much explanatory power and it's just fun to invoke and it explains exactly why it's difficult to explain it's the most meta it's the most fun but it's true <laughs> it's the, the curse of knowledge is essentially in some framings the fact that when you try and explain something you can underestimate the inferential distance that you're trying to bridge and not realize mm. that the level that your students are at or the level of the person you're having the conversation at is far enough away from some of the background knowledge you would need to do a kind of one-shot update on on the new knowledge that things get lost in translation and you can disagree yep. two reasonable people two reasonable people can fully disagree even though at heart if you had a perfect brain scanner you would find that they had the same mm. beliefs and, and the same core values yeah very much so i have one here that i can't name i've just called it unfair comparisons and i've noticed this actually being one that i myself do and have noticed people doing as well and i always call them out on because it helps a lot with your subjective experiences comparing ourselves to the sum of others so when you compare your social life to other people you compare yours as one individual to like the highlights of everyone else that you know's social lives yeah that's a really and so you can one. never you can never win that fight but i yeah, don't know that's, if there's a social media so it's like the social media heuristic so another kind of psychological quirk that is worth knowing about just for your own continued 
sanity and happiness is this idea of the hedonic treadmill and of our inability to reliably do what's called effective, not effective, but affective forecasting to predict our state of future happiness. So this is the sort of experimental result that gives meaning to the idea of money won't buy you happiness, or more specifically, people who win the lottery aren't that much happier a year down the line, even though if you ask, I mean, go find 10 people, ask them, if you won the lottery now, right now, how happy do you expect to be in a year? And they're going to tell you, usually are much, much happier. Yep. And, you, know, you expect getting that car or securing that partner or getting that promotion will make you a lot happier. And the moral of this story is just that we are reliably wrong. And there are some interesting ties in with Buddhism and all kinds of sort of uh, spiritual practices here. Well, and importantly, because the converse is true as well. Yes. If you lose your limbs, it's actually been shown that you return to pretty close to your original level of happiness anyway. So yeah. people who are like rendered disabled by some horrible accident or some illness, and they still return to the same kind of level of happiness. So the, the inverse of the positive case is true as well in the negative case. It's like, it, it's not, your life isn't actually over. You will probably be as happy as you were before. Mm, or close to it, right? Or close to it. And that's high incomes much closer to stoicism and buddhism points that you were mentioning mm. well you know it just occurred to me when you were saying that that this of all the biases that come into play when you try and talk to people about some of the ideas between just leave aside transhumanism for now just let's say prolonging human lifespan mm. you'll often get a pushback from someone and they'll say no i want to die when i get to 90 like i do not want to live anymore and i think this is kind of this bias at work here because well, there's several. First is that they're projecting as if they won't be that person, you know? Yeah. It's it's kind of like your 14-year-old self didn't imagine being your 34-year-old self, but now you are that 34-year-old and you don't want to die any more than your 14-year-old self did. So we, we, we struggle to reliably inhabit our future selves. And this is... As just as a, an aside aside, I think, this is a reason that we fail so reliably to implement good long-term habits because we imagine that the person bearing the cost for our poor choices today is somehow not us, even though we are perpetually screwing over some future us. Exactly. One aside back down now, when you then try and explain to someone why when they get to 90 or 80 or whatever it is that they've set their arbitrary marker at, well, they will just be existing and... You know, of course, I'm not denying that some people are in incredible amounts of pain and, and there is a good reason that we have uh, palliative care and euthanasia. But let's say things are going generally well. Well, then it's not like you're going to feel the weight of time. Existence will just still be existence. And it's this negative affective forecasting that makes us think, ah, no, at that point, I'm done. I'll be so unhappy. No, get rid of me. That's just not yep. true, I don't think. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the same the same argument from the forecasting can actually be sort of applied against the transhumanist view that says, you know, we want to actually live forever and transcend our biological limitations. But that's obviously a straw man because a lot of the things that determine our mood and our subjective experience are very much tied to our physiology and our biology. And so transcending those things could very well make us happier mm. right and uh anyone who's had a good experience with some prescribed say antidepressant or mood stabilizer would know that's like that can just make the difference like sometimes that 10 percent improvement is just all you need to then actually be someone who considers himself a happy person yeah or you know someone who's made a lot of lifestyle changes lost a lot of weight got into shape eats well and just feels that like five percent happier and that makes all the difference. I assume 10% happier was trademarked. That's why you couldn't say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we couldn't afford the rights. And uh, yeah, I mean, Dan Harris has to keep the lights on in the mansion somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned there the idea of a straw man. And well, I imagine our listeners are the kind of people who are very fair to the people they argue against. But still, even if we... So roughly speaking, the straw man is the tendency to not just argue against the position that your opponent holds, but to conjure up some much weaker version of the position that sounds accurate enough as to deceive, let's say, a an interested third party, and then you argue against that. And this is much easier to demolish, right? But this is a form of motivated reasoning, and motivated reasoning is its own kind of psychological bias, right? Where essentially you know the conclusion you want to get to, and so you'll use any tool to get you there as opposed to this sort of honest, curious uh, exploration of the balance of evidence that then, at the end of a full evaluation, lets you 
come to a, a conclusion. Now, the reason that I say this is because often in smart and thoughtful people, they're already trying not to straw man others. But what I find is the inability to kind of apply an analogous process to ourselves. I at least notice this with myself. If I have some belief, it's the tendency not to attack it at its weakest point, right? It's, it's related mm. to this idea of motivated reasoning. So you develop a kind of blind spot. And so you can get into a really nasty situation where someone you, let's say, actually, this is how biases can make you a worse reasoner, right? So now you know this list of biases, you've been listening to the episodes, and now someone comes to you and, and they tell you about their big plan to change the world. And you say, oh, yeah, there's the planning fallacy and there's confirmation bias and you're anchoring to this idea. And so you can tear them apart. You can just list all the reasons they're wrong. But now when you do it, you don't apply all of those biases to your own thinking. And so mm. you are not only failing to attack yourself at the weakest point. Let's say you do apply some of the biases, but you're subconsciously or without noticing applying the sort of analysis only at the strong parts where you can say, oh, well, the planning fallacy doesn't apply because I thought about it. But you really knew that. So you, you weren't looking at the weak parts of your argument or at the weak points of your position. But when other people are there, you, you know, cut for the jugular, so to speak. Yeah. No, I mean, this is a brilliant point. Uh, it's actually something that I've heard a lot of people refer to as the bias blind spot. Yes. And for me, this is deeply concerning because it means that you can get a lot worse at reasoning before you get better, right? Like you have to be really, really mentally disciplined to avoid just cutting through other arguments on the premise that they are committing some logical fallacy or are vulnerable to some bias. And within yourself, you like, oh, well, I know all the cognitive biases. I've memorized the whole list. Like I know all the canonical examples. Um, and so I clearly, if I have this idea, it must be correct because I know about all the biases. So I can't be falling prey to them. But research has shown and phenomenologically, we know that that's really not the case. And this bias blind spot is really, really dangerous. And I think we can have an interesting little aside and maybe it could be a whole podcast episode. But briefly now, I think it's worth talking about ways to potentially work around that because i think that knowing about all these cognitive biases is dangerous in the sense that it gives you a veneer of bulletproofness and that is a potential concern because it, it puts you in the same position as when you didn't know about the cognitive biases because now you might just be committing others or falling prey to the biases and not noticing it because you think you've already done your homework mm. to compensate for them another related point here that's worth mentioning is that it's important to remember that even if someone else is falling prey to cognitive biases, even if their heuristics are failing them, even if they're committing every logical fallacy in their argument, that does not mean that the conclusion of their argument is necessarily wrong mm. or right. It's important to remember, the person can be right for the wrong reasons. It makes it less likely, and it's still worth tearing apart the argument or dissecting it at the very least to show them why their premises don't lead to their conclusions. But that doesn't mean that just because someone made a bad argument for something that that thing itself is wrong, right? And this is an important corollary of the straw man fallacy. And it's mm -hmm. like, just because someone made a bad argument for something doesn't mean that the thing itself is inherently wrong or flawed. So you should seek out the best arguments for something. Right. And this is true in the world at large and also within your own mind. And I think that's the most challenging part. And this is where the whole bias blind spot challenge comes into play. And I think we're especially bad at this when it comes to things like our emotions, where it's so much harder to put things in concrete terms. And one of the reasons that I think things like therapy or, speci or specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, but even just talking to someone about problems that you're facing is so useful is because it allows you to externalize. Because now you're not just thinking about it as yourself. You're seeing the reflection of yourself through another person. And that person can notice when you're committing biases, when you're falling prey to cognitive biases. And so you get this reflective effect whereby you can look at yourself as a third party and in so doing, not be as susceptible to the blind spot anymore. And I think this technique is incredibly valuable, but woefully neglected. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is why Elias Yadkowski sometimes says something along the lines of, even if someone is the biggest idiot in town and they're telling you that the sun is shining, doesn't mean that the sun is not in fact shining right but yeah so i mean i think humans and especially rational ones are pretty good at getting into groups and discussing ideas and 
sort of holding the ideas in mind without accepting them and debating them and you know constructing arguments like people are decent at that but then as soon as you start applying these things to your own life you feel like you're still doing the same thing but you're internalizing it so much that you're not really putting it out there for sort of peer review in the same way and i think that's a large reason why people can fall prey to the bias blind spot in their personal or emotional lives if not even in their academic or working lives so i think that's one thing to be aware of is that it's not necessarily symmetric across activities that you do because we don't treat all things the same way in terms of conversation topics yeah so i think given that the opening to this conversation was about the availability heuristic the only appropriate way to close us off here is to now talk about the peak end rule so why don't you lead us in and then we'll wrap this up uh, great. So I believe that the peak end rule was actually part of the research done by Danny Kahneman. But yeah, it was one of these research initiatives that involved looking at people's subjective experience of something during recollection of the event, right? So not their experience necessarily during the event, but afterwards. So the general idea is you've got two different ways of being in the world, right? There's there's your experienced self, right? What's going on right now? And then there's your remembered self. You know, how do you relate to your entire life story? And what is the story you're telling yourself? And there's actually an entire host of very interesting ethical and moral implications for this, right? I mean, which of these two views of life are we obligated to make happiest? Is it Does it just matter if I'm happy right now as I experience it? Or are we ultimately trying to get the maximum area under the curve, let's say, of happiness for my remembered self you know it can mm. just a purely good life right now make up for a life of sadness and suffering before that i mean these are the questions that this deals with what happens with the peak end rule is that we excessively weight the impact of some experience on our remembered self right on the parts of ourselves that we retrospectively kind of identify with when the experience is either like the, the peak of that experience and then the end of that experience. Am I right in saying that? As far as I recall, it was a, a, a like a multiplicative product of the two or something along those lines. So it, it's literally like you multiply the peak by the end and that gives you your overall scoring of the event. So if we do a colonoscopy on you and I told you, no, no, I'm going to prolong this needlessly. There's no medical reason for this. You would be right in calling me unethical and your experienced self, if you knew that I was doing this, would say that this is a needless prolonging of the discomfort of having the scope inside of you. Yeah. But it turns out, right, that there's going to be some like maximum point of, of pain or discomfort during that procedure, right? Mm -hmm. And if you prolong the procedure artificially, but at the point of minimal pain, right, you basically play a trick on our psychology where now the peak discomfort happens, but then I just leave it in there for five more minutes. That that part is mild and I don't rush anything. And now I take it out and I ask you, well, how is your colonoscopy? And, you know, by virtue of a bunch of the biases we've already mentioned, including the availability heuristic, you go, oh, well, for the most part, it was actually okay. It was yeah. just that one bit of discomfort. So exactly. The duration doesn't really matter and the peak stayed the same, but the end was a lot less intense in terms of unpleasantness. And so overall, you recall it mm. as being less unpleasant overall. Uh, as far as I remember, this was the, actually the original sort of use case that Kahneman studied this for, is because colonoscopies used to be way more of a uncomfortable procedure than they are in modern time. And so... Yeah, I mean, also just, you know, good sedation. Well, yeah. yeah. So I think that was the whole context of how, of how it came about. And um, I think there's also some really good replication studies that looked at people putting their hands in like really cold water. Like you increase how long the hand is in the cold water, but you unknowingly to the uh, subject slowly start raising the temperature like a few degrees towards the end then they actually keep their hand in longer or they afterwards in surveys review it as being less uncomfortable than when they just put it in at this fixed temperature for a certain duration. So in other words, what we're saying is you look back on things, whether they are positive or negative, as sort of some function of the peak of that satisfaction or dissatisfaction and the level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction at the end of a thing. Yeah. So there's kind of an analogy to, to concentration, you know, so in the quick colonoscopy case, that unpleasantness is just concentrated in time. And so it's more available maybe, whereas it's, it's diluted by the added time of, of a mild stimulus as compared to the very sharp and 
like it's relatively short in duration discomfort. In terms of how this applies, again, it goes back to asking certain ethical questions, like whether we value mm. memories of past experiences and the life story you're telling yourself or sort of this only the current moment now and and in some Mm. sense creating a false dichotomy because it's probably some combination of the two and of course this is relevant to how one ends a podcast yeah this is a game i guess you're always playing with your audience you're trying to find a point where you can all leave with some sense of increased satisfaction it's no coincidence that the best films have obvious climactic moments and really good endings yeah and and at the same time like if you look back at holidays that you've been on that you thought were the best they probably had like one really great enjoyable moment along the way and probably ended quite well too like if you had your passport stolen at the airport on the trip home or your baggage was lost or something like that your view of the whole holiday is kind of soured deeply Mm -hmm. even though the majority of it was really good i mean this comes up all the time and if you know that that's the case you can actually plan things accordingly you can minimize recalled discomfort and you can maximize recalled pleasure if you're looking at like planning some event for people well you can maximize their enjoyment of that event by applying the peak end rule given that i think we should um, end this right there yeah right then and there great well it's been a fun chat i mean there are probably more biases that we haven't mentioned than we have um because it's a because they were all available they're all available exactly yeah so i think there is always more we can get into and definitely we'll be revisiting some of these ideas in the future but i think that's a pretty good spread of some of the most commonly discussed ones often misunderstood ones and ones that give you the most bang for your maybe epistemological buck here (laughs) in that you know knowing about the planning fallacy is great knowing how to counter for it is even better and uh knowing that you are probably going to be subject to it in almost every aspect of your life means that it was one that was definitely worth talking about and uh, i hope many of the others here that we've spoken about as well uh, follow that same kind of rule and i think this comes into play when you are trying to optimize tiny little things in life and benefit from those compounding effects so knowing about these improves things from social interactions to every aspect of your career and also just little things that you do on a daily basis and i think defending yourself against the negative side effects is one of the great things that any aspiring rationalist should be doing yeah so there you go thank you very much i will see you next time until next time thanks for listening to bits of a tangent if you enjoyed this episode please get in touch with us and share your thoughts you can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on twitter or instagram through the handle at podtangent For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There, you can also find full show notes, which have links to all the great content discussed in the episode. As mentioned in the introduction, we occasionally add bonus content related to the episode, or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other esoteric internet stuff. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, or whatever app you get your podcasts from. This lets them know that we're worth listening to and helps new people discover the ideas we discuss. The best way to hear about future episodes is to subscribe to us in your podcast app and, if you're so inclined, to enable notifications. That way you'll know when we've released something new, which is generally about once a week. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things we talk about here, consider sharing an episode with them. It really is the only way a podcast can grow authentically. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.